So glad you all are back. Um, you can tell by the first page of your notes we're going to start a little bit differently tonight, and there's a reason for that. I want to go ahead and give you your Bible study tip, but this one is going to take a few minutes to go through, and I didn't want to get into the chapter and then lose our flow, so we're going to do it from the get-go here. And as you can see, it's about genealogies, because chapter 3 opens with another very important genealogy that is going to give us some insight into the story altogether. So, one thing I want you to really consider, you all, is beginning to read the genealogies that are in the Word. Um, there is so much in each one, and I believe me, I know, I, I've been there. You get to one, and you want to skip it to get to the next important thing. And what I want you to consider is that these are very important things, and there is so much embedded in these lineages. So, first off, just begin to read them. Um, in Exodus 6, 14 through 25, you all, it is through a genealogy that we actually learn that Korah, who was the one who led the double rebellion against Moses and Aaron, was actually a cousin of Moses. Without the genealogy, we would not know that. And you all, that puts a whole, that puts a whole new spin on that story when you realize they were family. Um, the second thing I want you to start doing in genealogies, not only read them, but pay attention to every single word. If there's a word in there that's not a name and wasn't begat, well, circle it and look into it. Sometimes there's a one-word descriptor of someone. And in one of the genealogies we did together, which was found in Matthew, when we were doing the book of Ruth, the genealogy of Jesus, four times we have the word by, which just means so-and-so was begat by so-and-so, or so-and-so begat so-and-so by, meaning we are about to get who the mother is. You all, mothers aren't typically in genealogies. The women weren't in the genealogies. So when you have one, you know they are important, and there are four very important women in that genealogy. And thirdly, Start using these genealogies to build those text-to-text -text connections that we talked about last week. You all, genealogies will get you into a lot of different places. And to think of that, do you all remember Perez when we were in the book of Ruth? Had anybody heard of Perez before or looked into him? Okay, a few people had. I hadn't until I started studying Ruth. I would venture a guess that we had all heard of Ruth. Very important. She's mentioned in two books. Her own book, Ruth, and Matthew. That's it. Perez, you all, is mentioned in Genesis, Numbers, Ruth, Chronicles, Nehemiah, Matthew, and Luke. I find that very interesting. Makes me think he might be worthy of a little more looking into. But 
that just to show you that these genealogies can take you into a lot of other places in the Word. And that's what we want to do, you all, is start building these connections so as we are reading, our mind is taking us back to other books, to other stories, to other letters, both Old and New Testament. So there's a quote here that I just thought was wonderful, so I just wanted to read it to you. This is from Matthew Holst. He said, we get out of genealogies what we are willing to put in them. If we are prepared to spend the time, do the work, and be guided by the Spirit, we will be presented with potted histories of God's kindness to man. So we must read the genealogies of Scripture and study them. They, like every other part of Scripture, are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness that you may be perfect and equipped for every good work that second timothy 3 16 you all one of my favorite verses and that is one of the verses i i keep a list of verses right in front of my bible that i consider my bible study verses and you all before i start serious study of any book i pray these over myself and that's one of the ones i pray lord Every scripture, every, every one, does it really say that? Every single one is good for one of those four things. And sometimes when I hit a verse and I'm like, what in the world is this in here for? I'm like, Lord, show me which of these four things. Just help me to figure this out. Do you think that's a prayer that God is going to honor for you? Absolutely. You all, he wants us to understand his word. So for an application, here's what I'd like for you to do this week. Spend a few minutes thinking about why genealogies are profitable. Okay? So kind of put on your thinking caps here. Think about what they teach us about God, what they show us about his character, what they teach us about humanity, what they show us about the type of people God uses, all sorts of things, you all. Just really think on that. Try to come up with five reasons on your own, okay? And then after you do that, I've got an article here for you that I just thought was incredible. Five reasons why you should love genealogies. But do not go straight to that, okay? Do not go straight to that. And this is another Bible study tip that's not on your notes. So this one's for free. (laughs) As you're reading the Bible, read it for yourself. Pray, Pray over yourself as you read it before you go to commentaries, before you go to other people's insight into the Word. Because he can give you the same insight he gave that other person, okay? Now, I'm very thankful for those things. I love those things. I learn a lot. You know I have a whole library of other people's things, okay? But those are secondary. First, I try to get things for myself. And then when I go to someone else's and they say something that I got, it's like, oh, wow, thank you. God does. God does show me things, and he will show you things. So do it on your own at first, and then read this article, and I think it will be really enlightening for you.
and then after your application, there's a connection here for you. What I would like for you to look at this week is the introduction of Jesus in all the four Gospels, okay? Each Gospel writer introduces Jesus, of course, because the Gospels are all about Jesus, but his introduction is different. Two of those introductions are through genealogies. Two are not. Read them. I've got the scripture references for you right there. And then look at your chart, you all, and I'm going to tell you one of the keys to unlocking this is who is the audience for each of the gospel writers. Okay? And when you start getting a hold of that, you'll see why he was introduced in different ways. Same man. Same man, of course. But his introduction was different because his audience is different. Okay? So take some time, and just like Matthew Hulse said there, you'll get out of that connection there whatever time you're willing to put into it. Okay? But it will be fascinating if you give it some time. So now on to chapter 3, which is where we're going to spend our time tonight. And before I even read it tonight, you all, I want to tell you this week has been, this week's been a little heavy for me in getting this ready because there is some, there's some tough stuff in this chapter. And if you could see my notes, you would see. I put things in, I took things out. I put them back in again and then I scratched them out with a pen and I'm like, Lord, where do I go? Um... Y'all, I pray over you all every week, and I believe that whatever we get to tonight, and I'm just going to be led by the Spirit, um, I, I believe whatever we get to tonight, that you're ready for it or you wouldn't be here because that's what I've been praying. And um, ladies, we need to be people that can deal with the meat of the Word, not just the milk. Please turn with me to Hebrews 5. And the book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of the whole outline of Hebrews. It's really outlined around five different warnings to believers. And the third one of these warnings is the warning about failing to mature. Okay? And here's what it says. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Five. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, This metaphor of milk and meat is obviously about our spiritual growth. Okay? And... You all, there is a time and a place for milk 
and it is wonderful. Anyone who has had a child knows when you have a baby, that's all they can have. But not only is it all they can have, it has everything they need. Okay? Amazing. Everything they need for their growth and development is in milk. Okay? Not only is milk everything they need, but think about this as well. They cannot feed themselves. They have to be fed. They do not have the strength. They don't have the motor skills. They don't have the dexterity to feed themselves. All those things come through being fed milk. Okay? So milk is wonderful. There is nothing wrong with milk. It only gets bad if you stay there too long. Imagine a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or an adult drinking a bottle or having someone else feed them, you all. This is supposed to be ridiculous. (laughs) This metaphor is supposed to be ridiculous because what the author is telling us is it's ridiculous for us to not grow and to be able to take the hard things that are in here. And you all, there are hard things in here. There is the wrath of God. There is hell. There's judgment. And we have got to get ourselves ready to digest these things. Um, So, as we move forward tonight, again, because I think we're going to hit some things that that maybe you've never thought about, um, just um, j- just be ready. Because again, ladies, I just believe we're ready, and and I'm ready for more. I don't know about the rest of you all, but I'm ready for more. And I, I know I'm the one up here. And you all are there, but I'm learning right alongside you every week. I'm learning just like you are. Okay. So let's read Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, 
which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hand of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, again, we are so thankful for this evening. Thank you for the chance to be able to just even meet in freedom, to study your word, to have your word, to own your word without fear. Lord, we know that that is not reality for many people in our world. So, Lord, may we never take it for granted, and God, may we not ever be dull of hearing As we heard in Hebrews, Father, we long to understand your word. So I ask, Father, that you open our ears tonight to hear anything that you have for us, that you open our hearts to receive it, Father God, and that we be changed by the truth that we find in your word. Thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So chapter 3 starts out just like chapter 2 after these things. So we know whenever a chapter starts like that, that a chunk of time has gone by. Now, later in verse 7, we are going to find out that the happenings here are actually in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, the 12th year of his reign. If you remember in chapter 1, we were in his third year. 
in chapter 2. Last week we were in his seventh year, and now we're in his twelfth. So again, we've had another chunk of years that have gone by. So, it says, Ahasuerus promoted Haman. So, where, where did he come from? All of a sudden, here's this man on the scene, okay? And he's about to become very, very powerful. Now, last week, I gave you an application to think about, and it was, why were we given the names of the seven princes in chapter 1? Do you all remember? We got all the names of the princes, okay? So, I don't know who all thought that through, who all worked on it. I know a couple people did because they sent me texts about it, okay, with their ideas of who these people were. Some very good ideas, okay? I believe in this case, the reason we have the names of those princes is to show that Haman wasn't in that list. Because again, you all, he looks like he hasn't been this man with the king working his way up the ranks. All of a sudden, he's just here, and the king promotes him above all the other princes. Okay? I think this is going to be very, very important typologically. Okay? And we're going to get into some typology tonight. One of the things I'm talking about that is hard, okay, this book. So, he is the man in charge set above the thrones of all these other princes. And another thing I want you to notice, you all, from here on out, the story picks up pace very, very quickly. So, we start with a little genealogy here. It says, Haman the Agagite the son of Hamandatha. So, Haman is an Agagite, so we need to figure out who they are. And that word, to help you think about it, it's just like Benjamin, if you think of the tribe of Benjamin, and then a Benjamite was someone from that tribe. So when you have an Agagite, okay, it's someone from the lineage of Agag. So that's who we need to track down here and see who Agag is. So in order to find this, and you all, this is just, again, it's just done through a commentary, or not a commentary, I'm sorry, a um, concordance, thank you. You look up his name and go to the first place where he's mentioned, okay? So it is going to take us all the way back, you all, to the exodus of the people, okay? So let's look at Exodus 17, 8 through 16. I've got it on your sheets here. You might want to read it from your own Bible. You also you can actually underline things, circle things that you might want to go back to. Okay, but I'm going to read it from here. So Exodus 17:8 through 16. Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, "Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill." with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, 
Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. I love that scripture. Ah, we could stay there for a week. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God declares war on this group of people because of how they treated his people. And then the story picks up again many, 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 many years later with King Saul. So now turn to 1 Samuel 15. We're still kind of tracking down this line here. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul goes to war, and we'll pick it up in 15 verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He took him alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and of all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So we've seen this before. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel that Saul came to Caramel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? 
Let me tell you, you all, if ever God tells me to do something and I'm thinking what parts of it I want to do and what parts I don't want to do, this phrase goes through my head. Lord, I don't want you to hear any bleeding of sheep. I want to do what you tell me to do no matter how hard it is. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, making excuses for what he did, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God of Gilgal. Again, making excuses, defending his behavior, you all. Sometimes we disobey and we try to backtrack and defend ourselves, okay? We, we cannot do that. We need to be obedient, and when we are not obedient, we need to repent immediately. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's the same word as witchcraft. Disobedience is serious. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. In your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may now bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has turned the kingdom of toward the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Saul spared Agag. Samuel does exactly what Saul was told to do, and he kills Agag. But later you learn some of his sons escaped. Okay? And then again. Much later, you all, 600 years later, we see that a royal Amalekite 
now becomes the leader in Persia. So with the genealogy we had last week, you all, we saw that through David's kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness, we get Shimei, (laughs) through which we get Mordecai. And from Saul's disobedience and greed for the plunder and fear of man, we get Haman. So, here's an application, you all, and this is going to be a tough one, okay? The choices of these two men had incalculable effect on generations to follow. We need to think, are our choices as significant? Is it possible the choices we make affect generations? I believe there is a reason in Revelation, you all, where there is two days of judgment. There is a judgment for the righteous, which is called the Bema Seat. And there is a judgment of the unrighteous, which is called the Great White Throne. And those, those are specific days. The, the, we do not get judged on the same day, okay? We don't get judged on the same thing. Thank God. You all, the Bema Seat judgment, it, it is a sobering day. It is still our judgment, Okay. But it is a day where we have a chance to be rewarded for what we have done in this life. We get rewarded for our works. That's what it says in Corinthians. And I know that word work can scare people. You all, we do not work for our salvation. Our salvation is a gift of God through faith. There is nothing we can do to to earn it. It is a gift. No work can we do to earn salvation. But our salvation is our starting gun. It's not the finish line. It's not, oh, we're saved. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. I'm done. Y'all, that is our starting gun. And from that point on, we get a chance to work for him, for him, to do things for him. And we get to be judged on that one day and rewarded for that one day, okay? That judgment day does not have to be scary for the believer, okay? It it can be wonderful, but man, it should change the way we live. It should absolutely change the way we live. The judgment for the unbeliever is called the great white throne judgment, where they are judged on their deeds. And thank God we are not In that, if you believe in Jesus, if you have given him your life, if he is your Lord and Savior, you are not judged on your deeds. (laughs) All that has been washed away, and you are seen through the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. But as I think about these two men, you all, and I think about these judgments, here's what I'm coming to. And again, you all, you need to study. Don't believe this just because I say it. You need to study yourselves and look into these things and and come to your own conclusions on here. But I believe one of the reasons why possibly these days of judgment are at the end of history 
is because the effects of our lives do not end at the end of our life. Our lives, the effects of our lives and of our choices can go on and on and on. And it is not until that, that day of history it is closed where everything is done. Does that make sense? This is serious. Our, our, our decisions and our choices, you all, even some that we might think are small. That I just encourage you and challenge you to start thinking seriously about your decisions and your... How do you make decisions? Y'all, where do you go for wisdom? Where do you go for wisdom? What are you putting in here more than anything else? Okay? Because if it's not this, the choices, the, the chances of making good decisions fall greatly. Okay? We, we can't have this an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday and then get television nine hours a day and think we're going to make good decisions. We, you all, that's a lie. We have got to have this more than anything else because whatever you put in more than anything else is what you're going to base your decisions on. Okay? Okay. So work through that this week and see what you come up with. Um, Verse 2. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. So everyone at the king's gates, you all, and remember, these men that they were there, they were important men themselves. Okay, these were the princes of Persia. And they were told they had to bow to Haman just like they had to bow to the king. Okay? They, they probably weren't too happy with that. Right. Um, but Mordecai did not bow. I love the way the King James puts this. It says, Mordecai bowed not. Um, so compare this this week, you all. Think about this situation with Mordecai and how it is similar or different to the fiery furnace story that we get in Daniel chapter 3. Read the entire chapter, you all, and compare what is happening here. Because sometimes, what I want to throw out there, sometimes we get bowing in Scripture and it is sin. Sometimes we get bowing in Scripture and it's not sin. It's a sign of human respect, okay? Paying respect to someone who is worthy of respect. So there's several different verses here that have to do with bowing that I want you to think about in terms of the fiery furnace, what we have going on with Mordecai, and all these others. When Abraham bows to the sons of Heth when he's negotiating for Sarah's grave, we have Joseph's brothers bowing to him in Egypt. We have David bowing to Saul. And Jacob and his family bowing to Esau. 
So think through this. What makes the difference here? Because I, I don't think Mordecai would have been sinning here to bow. Okay? And there's a reason why I think that, and you'll hopefully discover that through your connections. But at the same time, he was directly disobeying a command of the king when he chose to do this. So, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to him, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, why in the world would Mordecai say this now? Seems like horrible timing. Here, this man, Haman, an Agagite, an Amalekite, (laughs) had just become the second most important man in Persia. And now he tells people he's a Jew? When he had not been telling people that, he had told Esther not to tell people that. Um, You all, he is making a stand here, okay? He has decided to make a stand. He's no longer staying in the background, no longer hiding who he is. He declares his heritage as one of God's chosen against an amount, one of Yahweh's enemies. He is fully aware, you all, that this could cost him his life. Okay? Yet he still chooses to do it. So the gauntlet has just been thrown and everything from here changes. So another application, you all, another thing to think through this week. What... If anything would cause you to make a stand against governmental laws, that's a tough one, you all. That that is that is a tough one. Um, I think we're we are very blessed in this country, you all. I believe the majority of our laws are for good things. I think our laws hold us to a very, very, very low standard. I mean, they they don't give us a very high mark here, you all. I could could sit around all day. I could eat chips and binge watch television. I hate that word that is used with television. That sends me over the edge when I hear people say they've been watched a show for three days. What in the world? (laughs) But I could do that. And then I could feel so bad about myself for doing that and being lazy. I could go to a bar. I could get drunk. I could hook up with somebody. I could get pregnant. I could have an abortion. And in none of that have I broken a law. So our law, uh, the standard there is mighty, mighty low. Okay? Um, But even yet, our, our laws aren't commanding that we sin. Y'all, there are places in the world where that is not true, where very laws would require someone to go, to go against this. So we, we need to think, you all, what, what, what is the line for us? What is the line for us? Think through it now before situations get here. And I'm not saying they're going to, but they definitely could. <laughs> they definitely could. There's a, there's a lot out there on the horizon. So, 
think through these type of things because Mordecai was ready to make a stand. And, and I do believe you all, there's a day that's coming where we're just going to have to make a stand. Too many social things going on right now, you all, where if we're Christians, we're not going to be able to sit back anymore. Hope nobody knows who we are. Hope nobody asks us our opinion on certain things. There's going to be a day where we have to make a stand on some hard things. And what will that cost us? What will that cost us? Sometimes in America, we, we get scared to make a stand because somebody might embarrass us on Facebook. You know, when they made a stand, it would cost them their lives. So, so the servants went and told Haman. So now this information has again been given to a known enemy of the Jews. So verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So this word disdained, you all, it is a very strong word. It means seeing someone or something as unworthy of one's consideration or respect. It means scornfulness or to regard with contempt. So this is how Haman was seeing Mordecai and all the people of Mordecai. But he said he did not want to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Did he have the power to do that right then? Oh, yeah, he could have taken care of that situation then, and it would have been done. Okay? He, he had that power. But because of his greed, because that wasn't enough anymore, now he wanted to take revenge on all of Mordecai's people. So he sought to destroy them all. You all, how many times throughout history have there been systematic, intentional, sometimes almost worldwide attempts to annihilate the Jewish people? I don't even know how many. I just put down the ones that I do know, but I, I'm sure there's more than this. Um, we have the destruction of the Hebrew babies by Pharaoh. We have the whole pursuit of Pharaoh in the Exodus through the Red Sea. We have the infanticide in Bethlehem under Herod. Now we're about to get Haman's edict right here that we'll be going through. We have and. Tachius Epiphanes, you all, this was the one that led to the Maccabean Revolt, which is what brings us Hanukkah. Um, that was an attempt to get rid of all Jews. And then, of course, the Holocaust. And then, ladies, if we look at present day, the Islamic anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism growing almost everywhere. You, all, you don't have to search too hard on the Internet to find... <laughs> A lot of things going on today. Um, 
And then I pulled this out from UNwatch.org, which is fascinating. If you want to know what's going on in the world, that's a good place to go. Um, you can see what the UN is doing. And in this 73rd session, you all, of the General Assembly, which covered 2018 and 2019, you all, you can see how many resolutions were passed against countries. Okay? Resolutions on Israel, 21. Resolutions on the rest of the world, 6. These 6 included Iran, Syria, North Korea, Crimea, Myanmar, and the U.S. For the U.S., you all, it was because of our embargo on Cuba for that year. Okay? But think about what's going on in all these other countries. They each get one resolution against it in Israel, 21. Do, do you think something is going on here? <laughs> when we, all, all things going on in the world, you all, it will start making a little more sense to you if you kind of think not politically, but think spiritually. <laughs> and then things become a lot clearer. You all, Satan hates the Jewish people because God has called them his. And Satan wants that parcel of land because God has put his name on it. So this, it, this is a spiritual battle that has been raging since the very, very beginning. And we need to know what is going on in the world, okay? Because a lot is happening. Um, to help you with some text-to-world connections here, I've got a little box for you. And I will say, in the past five years, I have learned more about our world, more about Israel, <laughs> more about current events through this man than I have all my other 40-whatever years combined, okay? This is a pastor out of Hawaii. His name is J.D. Farak. What is interesting is he was a Palestinian immigrant. His family moved here when he was a baby. He got saved as a teenager. So his knowledge of all things Middle Eastern is incredible. So he has a very interesting take on everything having to do with Israel. So every week, he, he's actually a pastor, he preaches, but then after his sermon, you'll hear him say, okay, if anybody wants to stay for the update, stay. He does about an hour every week where he takes current events and he matches them up with what's going on in the Bible. It's fascinating. And I'm not the only person in this room that listens to him every week. And I know that because I talk to some of y'all every week about what he says. Okay, it's fascinating. And if you want to learn what's going on in Israel, this is a great place to start. So I've got instructions there for you. It, you just go to YouTube, type in what I have for you there. It'll pull up. I subscribe to him. I subscribe to this. So every Sunday it just pops to my phone so that I don't miss it and I listen to it every week. Um, so do that if you want, but it will give you some very good text-to-world connections. So... Past attempts, present attempts, and you all, there is also going to be a future attempt to annihilate all of the Jews. 
And you all, this is the time that is known in the Bible as the Great Tribulation. It is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is going to be a horrific time on this planet. I am a 100% believer in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I don't think anybody could convince me otherwise. I used to not really know, oh, maybe we go before, maybe after, I don't know. No way, I don't think anybody could convince me otherwise. And if we had the time, I would take you from Genesis to Revelation of why I believe that. Typologically, my goodness, you all, the whole First Thessalonians is the rapture um, over and over. Um, it, again, don't believe it because I'm saying it. Um, please study for yourself. But that is what I believe, so you need to know where I'm coming from. Um, but this time of the Great Tribulation is coming, and during this time, there will be an attempt again to wipe out all of the Jews. And one of the things I want to throw out to you all tonight as we continue to go through this, you all, when we did the book of Ruth, we saw that that entire book, typologically, was a story of redemption. Oh, what a beautiful story, okay? That story, real people in real time, things that happened to them, yet it foreshadows something that was yet to come. I think we have the same thing with Esther. But with Esther, real people, real time frame, but I believe it is foreshadowing the Great Tribulation. And as we go through this, I'm going to show you some reasons why I think this, what has gotten me there. So, connection before we move on. If you'll read Psalm 83 and just pay particular attention to verse 4. What is this verse saying that nations are trying to do to Israel? Spelled out very clearly there. And what is God's response? What are nations trying to do? What is God's response? You all, God tells us very clearly we are to support Israel. Okay? We, we need to think about that. We need to know what's going on in the world because God tells us to support Israel. And um, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And if you'll flip a couple pages back, I don't know how many pages in your workbooks, but you can see your calendar, page 21. page 21. So you see there, first month is Nisan, and this is when they started casting the pure. Okay, here's a picture for you of a pure. It's just an ancient dice. Okay, and this one was actually, um, this one had the name pure on it, and it was found on a die from the reign of Shalemester III of Assyria. Remember, Assyria was the world power 
before Babylon, which was um, in control when the Persians took it over. So that is a pure, and the Persians were a very, um, I just lost the word, um, superstitious people, okay? So they would lead things up to chance, up to fate. So in deciding when would be the most opportune time for events at the beginning of the year, they would roll dice and literally leave things up to chance, okay? So Haman, wanting to know when was the most opportune time to, um, to do his plan, he starts rolling dice, okay? And they roll dice day after day, month after month. They start in Nisan, but they do not get the answer they want until Adar. That's almost an entire year before he gets the okay, I guess. All, all I think of here is like a magic eight ball, you know, yes, can I go, yes, can I go to the king, no, 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 and finally getting his yes. So almost a year before he takes this plan to the king, okay? So in the 12th year, they cast pure before Haman. Um, I think it's interesting, you all, that the month that was chosen was the 12th month, almost a year later, and the exact day, you all, which we're going to find out later, is the 13th, okay? So this day that he was going to propose is the 13th of the month. So imagine how he's feeling after a year of waiting to get the answer that he wants. And now he's going to the king. So verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So, he tells them that this is a certain people scattered about, but he does not tell them who they are. Okay? Doesn't give them the name of the people. Unfortunately, the king doesn't ask. So it says, in all the provinces, and you all, again, flip back a few pages and look at your map. This is something we need to see here. I think it might be on 16. Is that 16? 14. Haman is saying, there are people in all your provinces, look at that map, you all, that are not obeying your laws. They're doing their own thing. It doesn't profit you to keep them. This is not just the Jews in the city, you all. This goes all the way, look at that, to Jerusalem. These would be the Jews in Jerusalem, the ones that went back after they were allowed to go back after the exile. This is people in Egypt 
all the way over to the coast of India. Y'all, there is no telling how many people this is. No, no way to get a number for that. This is huge. And Haman says, a certain people scattered about. He tells them they, he tells the king that they do not keep their laws. So he is making a false accusation against all the Jews saying they are not obeying Persian laws. And he plants the seed that it would be better for the king to get rid of them. He is a false witness who breathes out lies. Who does that sound like? Yes. Yes. Y'all, I want to put out there typologically, I believe Haman is a type of the Antichrist. Okay? Because if you think of this, you all, here he is, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, and he's the most powerful person. Okay? And we're going to see in a minute, more powerful than the actual king because the king relinquishes his ring to him. So he's the top man. Another interesting thing, I'm trying very, very hard to find somebody who believes the same way as me on this. I have found one. Again, think about it yourself. Because a lot of people will try to tie Esther with kind of the bride of Christ. I I cannot get there because she's Jewish. And nowhere, those are always separated, you all. The, The Jew... And the bride of Christ. Okay, Israel and the church. I see, I see it differently. I believe the word portrays that very, very differently. I believe, you all, that Vasti represents the Gentile bride. Because at the same time that she was removed, she was also saved. That's why we hit that very hard a couple of weeks. Y'all, her life was spared. It should not have been spared. She should have been killed. She wasn't. She was removed and she was saved. And after that happens, the Antichrist comes on the scene. And if you believe Revelation literally, and I am one who believes the Bible literally, word for word, I believe Revelation shows us that the church gets raptured and then the Antichrist rises. So all this wondering, who's the Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, we're not going to know. If we're the church, we're not going to know. Or I don't believe we're going to know. Okay? I believe we will be taken and then the Antichrist rises quickly and has the power with the intent of destroying the Jews, along with anyone else you all that does not pay homage to him. He demanded people bow down. The Antichrist will demand they take his mark, but it's paying homage one way or the other. So he tells them, they do not keep the king's laws. He falsely accuses all Jews of not obeying, Um, he's making the king believe 
that this is in his best interest. We've already seen what kind of king this is. He's kind of wishy-washy, just very easily talked into almost anything, you all. So now here is Haman, I would say a master manipulator, trying to get the king to believe this is for his good that he is going to destroy these people. And Esther, you all, later is going to use this very thing against him. Oh, it is so good. She is so smart. Because we will see later, this is in no way for the king's good. Actually to his detriment if he were to do this. So, for a connection here, you all read John 8, 44, John 10, 10, 1 John 3, 8, Revelation 1. Um, well, I obviously have that wrong. Um, I'll have to look that up. Um, and I realize with your question, I just told you. So, I seem to be in a habit of that with you all. So, read these verses and then you can see whether you agree with that or not, whether you think he might be a type of the Antichrist. So verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So again, if it please the king, making him think it's his decision, making it think him think it's for his good. And now Haman sweetens the deal, you all, because he says, I'll pay for it. You don't even have to do anything. I'll pay for it. 10,000 talents of silver. Now, you all, I looked at this in several different places, and I will say there, there's a lot of different speculations of how much that really is. I just went with the one that was the most because it was so shocking. Um, a talent was about 75 pounds. So this would be 750,000 pounds of silver, which in today's market, there's, there's not much speculation about what that means. The rest there is. Um, one source said it would be equivalent to around $12 billion. That's a lot of money, okay? And here we have a king who about six years prior had come off disastrous wars, lost a lot of people, and no telling how much of his treasury. So this is probably looking very, very good to him, okay? So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. So in giving Haman his rings, it would be like saying you can sign my name on anything. He was giving him the authority of the king himself. And then he told him, with that authority, he could write up anything that he wanted. He could write this edict any way he chose. And then not only that, but then the king says this. The money 
is given to you, the people also to do with as it seems good to you. Now, typically, you all, when a people group would have been conquered, everything that they owned, all the spoil, would go to the king. And for some reason, Ahasuerus is just kind of giving it up. Okay? Yep. So I don't know if he thinks what he's getting from Haman is going to be more. Like that 10,000 is going to be more. So yeah, take whatever you want. Because he doesn't know who the people are. He doesn't know they're the most blessed people on the planet. He doesn't know what he's about to lose and what Haman's about to gain. So he says, okay, you, you just keep the spoil. In fact, do whatever you want with the people. They are yours too. So Haman is going to pay the 10000 and then he gets to decide what to do with the plunder and what to do with the people. Keep it all himself, use it to his advantage. We're about to see. So the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So now we're back to the first month, okay? It's on the 13th day of the first month that this happens. I I just wonder, I, I know there's always some kind of historical linkage here, but I just wonder if this is not where we got unlucky 13, um, because that's pretty crazy. So an edict according to all that Haman commanded, again, he wrote it up exactly how he wanted it to be written, and it was written in the name of the king, sealed with his ring, so it was just as if King Ahasuerus had written this himself. And we know you all think about, I think it was last week, what we learned about a Persian law or a Persian edict. Once it was made, it was done. Couldn't be revoked. Even if a king changed his mind. And interestingly enough, you all, we learn that from Ahasuerus' father, Darius did the exact same thing. Let's look at Daniel 6. In this story, and and I know you have it as a connection, but we're going to go through some of it here. In the previous connection that you'll be doing this week with the fiery furnace, you will see that at the time of the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was under Nebuchadnezzar. They were in Babylon, okay? Now, when the Persians conquered Babylon, they took Daniel with them, okay? So Daniel was high, high in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He served Cyrus, who conquered Nebuchadnezzar, and now here we're going to see he's serving Darius, okay? So, in verse 1, 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So he moves Daniel in and then puts him in charge of over all these other high officials. Again, think about what all these other men are thinking. Very mad, very jealous, exactly what happened, you all, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? It's jealousy that leads to this. So, these high officials, they find no reason, you all, to complain against Daniel, okay? Because there's nothing to complain about. So, they know if they want to bring him down, they're going to have to trick the king somehow, okay? They're going to have to manipulate a situation to work in their favor, and that's exactly what they do, okay? They go to the king, and they say, oh, king, you know, we say that you write a decree that no one can worship any other god aside from you, because back then, you all, these rulers thought that they were gods, okay? They, they demanded to be worshiped. So, said, let's write Let's write a law that if anyone worships another god, they will be thrown into the lion's den, okay? To which Darius says, okay. So, when they get him to write this, they say these words, and I'm reading from verse 7. Whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. They knew there was no way Daniel was going to go 30 days without praying. Okay? So they get him to write this, and they say those words, Once you sign it, seal it, cannot be revoked. So Darius signs it. Um, Of course, they trap Daniel. They go to the king, accusing him, and they say, um, we've found someone who has broken the law. He was bowing to his God, to which he needs to be thrown into the den of lions. And this is what Darius answers. And this is in verse 12. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So they say, we caught somebody. And he says, yep, okay, throw him in the lion's den. This law cannot be revoked. And then they tell him, it's Daniel. To which the king was distraught distraught and he wants to save him but he cannot because of a law that he made so as they're throwing Daniel into the lion's den he says to him may your God whom you serve continually deliver you he couldn't deliver him but God could and God did and then because of that all the false accusers 
along with their families, you all, along with their families, got thrown into the lion's den. But here we have, you all, all I can think of is like father, like son. I mean, I don't know if we have a father who didn't teach his son about this way of being a king and some wisdom, or did we have a father that taught and a son that didn't listen? I don't know, but something here was a mess because he just did the exact same thing that his dad did. Um, you all, and that brings us all the way back to our very first lesson together in Ruth when we talked about the importance of teaching our children. We are to teach our children. And the thing we are to teach them more than anything else is the way of the Lord. So think through that, you all. What are we teaching? Who are you teaching? I know you've already done that one, but we're about a month, a month from when we first talked about that. So have you done anything about that? Have you found somebody to um, maybe share some truth with? If not, just get started. You you don't have to be, no, of course, nobody's perfect. You don't have to be totally ready. You don't have to feel ready. You just have to start, and God will honor it. Um, You all, at the end of this, you're going to have a binder with a pretty detailed way to go through both Ruth or Esther and and I will say I don't think there is a girl or a woman out there that would not I don't think there's a man either that would not benefit through going through the books of Ruth and Esther you have all you need just pick somebody just pick somebody and just get going Um, so 13 Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. I think it's interesting. It's always listed in threes, you all. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Makes me think of steal, kill, and destroy um, over and over. So these letters go out to all all the provinces. You all, we talked about that communication system that they had, which was just amazing to be an empire this big. But what they did is they just put horses with riders a day distance apart from each other. So a rider could go out, ride the whole day. When he got to the next rider, he would take up. So there was no, no actual resting in getting the communication out. It was going 24-7 until it got out to all the provinces. So the instruction, again, was to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Um, This was his revenge. Again, if he... (laughs) If he had just taken care of Mordecai at that time, this would have been over for him, and we are going to see the very thing he wants to do to others is what gets done to him. This is the irony of this book. So for a connection there, you all, and again, just thinking about Haman here, 
read Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And as you read it, just underline six things that the Lord hates. Six things he hates. And the seventh, which is an abomination to him. Or you can actually say all seven are an abomination, you all. And as you go through these things, I want to just suggest Haman exhibits every single one of them, all seven. Okay? So I've got a little chart for you there where you can list the seven things that God hates and that are an abomination. Show where Haman illustrates this. I did the first one. It's just haughty eyes. God hates haughty eyes. <laughs> pride. You all, that was the reason for the fall in the first place, pride. Um, and how he shows that he views others with disdain and expects them to pay homage to him. He views himself much more important than anywhere else. And then I just put the chapter and verse. And then you all, let your connection here lead you straight into an application. So get what you're learning. And then for your application, what is your defense against this trap? Because you all, all seven are traps. And they can be quite easily to fall into. We, we all struggle with pride at some point in our lives, you all. We do. So, so what's our defense? And for that, I suggest you need to get in here and you need to use this as a sword and get a scripture that you can use as a defense against these seven things, okay? And there's a place for you to turn your connection into an application. So verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. I cannot even imagine you all. They're going to spend a year waiting for that day. Other people are going to spend a year getting ready for that day. We're going to talk about that more later, but what a horrific year that would be. And yet, you all, we know from Matthew, when it talks about the Great Tribulation, it, it says there's not a time on this earth like it. Nothing before, nothing before. And you all, I, I think we can agree, we've been through some horrible things. There are horrible things in our history. This is one of them. And yet it says the Great Tribulation... Nothing will compare to it. You all, that needs to push us. (laughs) That needs to get us out there. That we, again, I believe we're getting saved from it. But, you all, if we have loved ones that we think are going through it, let's do something while we have the chance. We have the chance now. Nothing's stopping us. Nothing is stopping us. Not even a law. (laughs) Not even a law. Don't, don't let anything stop you. This is going to be a horrific time. This year for these people will be nothing 
like these years that are coming. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I don't even know what to say to the king and Haman sat down to drink. How do you even comment on that? They just sealed the death of millions of people, and they sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, remember, you all, they, of course, would be the first ones to get the news. It would take a little while for it to spread all throughout. But now the people in the city have the news, and they are thrown into confusion. And you need to remember, these were the Persians. They were used to horrific things. They were used to treating people badly. (laughs) And yet the whole city was in an uproar. So what, what was the difference here, you all? Was it Haman's bloodthirstiness? Was it the king's indifference to this people? Or was it just the number of people that this was going to affect? We don't know. But something made this different than other things that had happened in this city before. So, I'm going to stop there. I I know it was kind of a heavy night, y'all. It was a heavy night for me.